Praise God. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to start sharing a series with you. I'm going to share on this all weekend, just about the love of God. And um, I've got a lot of teaching out on this. Actually, I teach everything I teach came out of this, and it all has the unconditional love of God in it. But uh, I feel impressed this weekend to just do some things differently talking about the love of God. You know, when you talk about how God loves you, it's really, I found, the hardest thing to teach on. And that sounds kind of strange. Why would it be hard? Well, there's a couple of things. For one thing, everybody talks about this, and so people think, oh, I've heard this. And so they don't really open up and put a draw on you. Like, whereas if I said I was teaching on healing, and we're going to teach seven steps to get anybody healed, everybody's antennas would go up. Because you know what? You are either sick or know somebody that's sick, or you're going to be sick. And so immediately you're motivated. But, you know, people think, well, I already know about the love of God, and so they tend not to uh, open up and receive this. And then there's another thing. People have, um, I I don't know how to express this, but people say they understand the love of God, but they don't. It's a It's an area of deception. I'm going to show you some scriptures tonight that will show about what would really be taking place in your life if you had a full revelation of the love of God. And if we would just look at what the scripture promises would be the result of understanding the love of God, then I think most of us will have to admit that, boy, we don't have it. And so this is hard to teach for those reasons. People think, oh, I've already heard this. People are deceived and thinking that they have a revelation of it when they don't. And uh, so it's just a little bit hard to minister on. But I'm going to share some things that if you can stick with me and if you'll open up your heart, I can promise you this will change your life. It was the love of God that just, I mean, revolutionized me. It renovated my life and it's still affecting me. And, you know, again, I talk to people all of the time. I don't know how to express some of these things. I'm just believing that God's going to give me a supernatural... You know, it's amazing. I've been doing this for a living for 30-something years, and I'm still overwhelmed. There just aren't words to convey adequately God's love. And I get a little frustrated sometimes trying to say it. But I meet ministers especially all of the time who they started out, they had a partial revelation of the love of God, but after a while they get burned out. And they get tired, and they get discouraged, and they get overwhelmed by problems. And most of you think, well, that's just kind of normal life. That's the way that it is. But you know, I can truthfully say that if you have a relationship with God, functional, and working in your life, to where you aren't just talking about the love of God, remembering the love of God from years back, but if you are dwelling in the love of God, it just makes everything easy to handle. You get to a point where it kind of, in a sense, it just waterproofs you. All of the stuff that this world wants to do and get on the inside of you just runs off you like a water off a duck's back. It's like being in a bubble. The love of God will literally surround you. And when a person comes and says they're depressed, I can guarantee you, you don't have a revelation of God's love for you. Or you could not be depressed. It's impossible to be depressed understanding God's love for you. And I know some of you are like, wow, I already disagree with you. (laughs) 
But I believe that that's true. Somebody says, but you don't understand. I got a chemical imbalance. Well, I guarantee you the love of God would heal your chemical imbalance. Amen. See, we all, we just, we haven't understood how powerful the love of God is. And if you're struggling, believing something, you know that God wants to bless you. God wants to heal you. God wants to move in your life. But if you're struggling with unbelief, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, that faith works by love. If you're struggling with unbelief, you're struggling understanding that God loves you. And many of us say, oh no, I don't have any doubts that God loves me. And then we turn around in the next breath and say, oh God, put this cancer on me to teach me something. You know what? There has been a lot of confusion put out. The actions of God have been misinterpreted so that a lot of times it just... We, ha- we have this thing. We say that we know God loves us, but in practice we do not really walk in and experience the love of God the way we should or our lives would be different. And my personal testimony is that the night that God really revealed His love to me. Now, I got born again when I was eight, and it was because God showed me His love. I remember our pastor preached a sermon on hell, and he said, Who's who in hell? That was the title of his sermon. I can still remember this, eight years old. And he took us on this real dramatic thing through hell and showed us, you know, the murderers and the rapists that were in hell, but then began to start showing some of the famous people in history that the world just thought were awesome. They're also in hell. And I mean, it shook my little eight-year-old mind. And I remember going home and asking my dad about this and saying, this guy says that if I don't, you know, make Jesus my personal Lord, I go to hell. And my dad explained to me what it was all about and told me that that was true. But that God loved me and put all of my sins upon Jesus and Jesus loved me so much. And you know what? It was the I got scared straight what got my attention. But when my dad started sharing with me about the love of God, I knelt down right in my bedroom and that's when I got born again at eight years old. And it was the love of God that impacted my life. And so I had a revelation of God's love to a degree, but then when my dad died when I was 12 years old, the pastor of the church told me it was God that killed him. Uh, And I saw all of these bad things happen and this was God's judgment and this is how God does things. And you know what? Over a period of time, I still would have said, oh yeah, I believe that God loves me. But I thought that God is the one that killed my dad. That God, and you know what those things do? It begins to dim your perception and it keeps you from really understanding. That's a misrepresentation of God. And so I would have said, yes, I know that God loves me. But... I fell into this trap of believing that God loved me based on my own goodness. And I became a religious Pharisee and I started living holy and doing all of these things. And I mean, I was straight as a gun barrel and twice as empty. Amen. I would not... Man, I never have, you know, taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never said a word of profanity in all my 58 years. I have lived a straight life. But you know what? I was trusting in that goodness and hoping that was enough and that God would bless me because of what I've done. And on March the 23rd, 1968, the Lord just showed me how hypocritical I was and how I was trusting in myself, how I was self-righteous instead of faith-righteous. And I saw my unworthiness, 
more than probably most of you have ever seen. Many of you have done things that I haven't done and you may think, oh, I, was, I really felt like I was a terrible sinner. There's not a person in here that ever felt more ungodly or more unworthy because I had God's pure, holy light shine on me and I got a full revelation of my unworthiness. And I guarantee you, I deserve to go to hell. And I saw these things. And I honestly thought God was going to kill me. I thought that when I saw those things for the first time under this light of God, that that was the first time God had seen that. And I thought God was going to kill me. But before He killed me, I was going to confess. And man, I just confessed everything I could think of. I turned myself inside out. I confessed thoughts and attitudes, feelings that I didn't even know I'd had. And I spent an hour and a half in front of all of the leaders of our church confessing how sorry and and these terrible, terrible things that you should never admit to anybody. I didn't care who heard it. Man, I confessed all of these things. And I expected God to kill me. And to my surprise, instead of Him killing me, I felt a tangible love. I don't know how to describe it. I heard Charles Finney say that there was waves of liquid love that flowed over him. And it was something similar to that. For four and a half months, I was gone someplace. I don't know where I was. For four and a half months, I was caught up in the presence of God. And I knew that God loved me. And the point I'm making is, there was a difference between when I got born again and I knew that God loved me and that drew me to Him and I accepted it to a degree. But then I experienced the tangible love of God and it transformed my life. And it's not a static experience. It's not something that you experience and then it's just constant all the time in your life. I remember, you know, 20 years later or something like that in ministry, we were just having a lot of problems and all kinds of things going on. And I wasn't depressed. I wasn't defeated. But I wasn't rejoicing the way that I normally did. I was beginning to let things bother me. And I remember we had finances and other things that were... Uh, pressing in on me, and I had a dream. And in this dream, I can't remember all of the things, but in this dream, God came to me once again and just showed me how much He loved me. And when I woke up, I was back in that position of knowing that I know, that I know, that I know that God carries my picture in His wallet. Man, I knew it. And you know what? When I woke up, I didn't. my problems weren't changed. But I was changed on the inside. And once again, it wouldn't have mattered. You could have done anything to me. You could have killed me. You could have taken my ministry away from me. You could have done anything. And it just doesn't matter. And so I'm saying all of these things to say that I know that many of you think you know and understand the love of God. But we're going to read some scriptures here that talk about the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of the love of God. There is more than just the surface knowledge. And I can promise you, if you aren't filled with the fullness of God, you aren't filled with the love of God. It's absolutely true. Look at these passages of scripture in Ephesians chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul talking. And in verse 14, Paul said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend... 
We're going to go on and read this, but notice this first. If you get rooted and grounded in love, then you start comprehending. God is love is what it says over in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. And if you are trying to relate to God, to figure out God, to understand the ways of God, to have God move in your life, anything to do with your relationship with God, if you aren't looking at it through like a glass, an eyeglass of love, you are going to get a distorted, misunderstood picture of God. God is love. And it's only when you get rooted and grounded in love that you truly begin to start comprehending. And you could turn it around and say it this way, that if it seems like God is hard for you to understand, if it seems like it's confusing and it's just hard to figure God out, what is God going to do next? There's a lot of people that feel that way. It's because you haven't understood the love of God. And let me just be honest and say this, and I'm going to explain this in more detail as we go through this week, but our religious system intends good I believe that most of the people probably intend good, but you know what? They misrepresent God and have misrepresented His dealings with people, and because of it, uh, we really are blinded to this love of God, and we can't comprehend. You aren't... When you start thinking about the love of God and start trying to understand how much God loves you, did you know that the Holy Spirit will help you to understand that? The Holy Spirit will anoint that. But when you start trying to see this harsh, mean God that's ready to judge America and destroy us because of our sin and the wrath that God's going to fall and God's going to put sickness on you and possibly kill somebody if you don't straighten up. When you start hearing those kind of things and somebody says, if this person leaves this church, they're going to die because they have spoken against the prophet of God and, you know, the earth's going to open up and swallow them alive and all these kind of things. When you start hearing stuff like that, It blinds you, it hardens your heart, and it keeps you from understanding and perceiving the true nature of God. It's when you're rooted and grounded in love that you start comprehending. If if it seems like God is hard to understand and you can't figure Him out, then it's because you're trying to relate to Him probably based on misinformation that has misrepresented God, and you see a harsh, cruel God. You know, let me give you this illustration real quick. I won't go into great detail, but I had a horse one time given to me that I was going to catch this horse and break it and stuff. And I'd already had the uh, uh, two horses given to me, and these were the two foals uh, of the uh, other horses. And so anyway, these were wild horses, and they'd been out to pasture for three years. One of them had a halter put on when it was a yearling, and the horse had grown, and the halter was growing into its muzzle. And so it was, it was killing the horse, and they couldn't catch the horse. You could put feed in a bucket, but you couldn't uh, touch the horse or anything. They were wild horses. So I paid these two cowboys $350 apiece to go catch these horses and break them for me. And the horses broke them. One of the guys went to the hospital and went to the hospital. They gave him a money bag and says, we don't want anything to do with these horses. So anyway, the people that gave them to me were moving and they were leaving and they were going to call somebody to shoot the horses and put them down. And so it came down to where something had to be done. Anyway, it's a long story. I'm not going to go into all this, but I caught those horses. And when other people couldn't, God showed me how to catch them. And I caught this horse, but this one horse named El Shaddai was the name of this horse. This one horse just went bananas when I caught this horse. I thought it was going to kill itself. And it's a long story. I won't go into all of it. But uh, finally, I got this horse caught 
and I tied it up in between these two railroad ties, and I, I couldn't pick it up that day, so I had to leave it there. When I came back the next day to um, pick up this horse, it had gotten its hind leg up in the rope up here by its uh, halter, and it was a nylon rope, and it had rubbed the uh, hind leg down to the bone. And this horse was laying down, and I had a vet look at it, and the vet said, you're going to have to put the horse down. And I said, man, I didn't go to all of this trouble to kill this horse. So anyway, I I got this horse and made this little thing and put it over in a shed. And then I went over twice a day and just doctored this horse, put salve on it, sang to this horse, talked to this horse, and did all of these things. And I did that every day, twice a day for, I don't know, a month or two months. And that horse finally got up. And anyway, uh, you could ride it after that. It was broke. It was green broke. It wasn't broken the proper way, but it was broken and you could ride it. But here's my point. After all of those things happened to this horse, you know, it was an Arabian horse and it was a beautiful horse. And it'd be standing in the pasture and its head'd be up and it was just a beautiful looking horse. It'd see my little green pickup coming down the thing. And when it saw my pickup, that horse had put its head down and its ears back and it'd just start shaking like this. It'd just shake. And it was because of what happened to that horse. And I'd go talk to that horse. I petted that horse. I told it. I said, you got a totally wrong impression of me. But this horse... This horse was petrified of me. It would just scared nearly to death of me. I mean, it would physically shake. If you were sitting on this horse with a saddle, I mean, it would nearly buck you off the horse just because the horse was shaking so bad. And that horse misunderstood me based on things that happened, but it misunderstood what was happening. It thought I was the one that caused all the problem. I didn't. I actually was saving that horse's life. They would have killed that horse if I hadn't caught it. And when I caught that horse, it was the horse that rebelled at me catching it that nearly caused it to die and caused so much problems. I was there trying to help it. And anyway, I say all of that to say that there are people that have gotten a wrong impression of God from things that are written in Scripture, but they don't understand the proper use of it. And because of this, they've got a wrong impression of God. And they don't understand the love of God. And they can't comprehend because they are seeing God as a harsh, judgmental, angry God. And if that's the way that you see God, even if that's the way that you were taught and you now know better, but if you haven't gone to a major effort to renew your mind, that that impression of God will blind you to true revelation. If you understand, if you're rooted and grounded in love in verse 17 and then verse 18, here's the result. You will be able to understand with all saints. See, this isn't limited to just the super saints. This isn't limited to just preachers or full-time ministers. This is for all saints. Every one of us is supposed to have a full, deep revelation of how much God loves us. And I know that there's some people that think, well, that's just for you guys that are full-time ministers. I'm Joe Blow Christian. I've got to go out and work a job. And I, you know, I just... You don't think that God loves you that way. Every one of you ought to be so overwhelmed with the love of God that, I mean, it just... You, it nearly incapacitates you. You're just so dominated with how much God loves you, it's hard to focus on anything else. You know what? You can be that way. So it says that with all saints you might be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and depth and height. See, this is talking about dimension to it. 
It's not just a little surface level. You need to plumb the depths of the love of God and the length and the breadth and the height of the love of God. And the truth is that there's no way to ever plumb it. We don't ever get a full revelation. You just keep pursuing it. You know, this year, I've uh, talked to David and Gail down here about this. I was telling him that, man, I'm getting more out of the Word. I'm getting more revelation than I've ever had in 38 years of studying the Word day and night. The Word is opening up to me, and he says, you say that every year. (laughs) But it's true. Every year it's true. Did you know what? I am more excited about the Lord. I'm more in love with the Lord. I'm getting more revelation of the Word. You can't ever search out all of the things of God. I've read the Scripture, I couldn't tell you. Certainly hundreds, maybe thousands and thousands of times, and I'm just overwhelmed by the things that I'm seeing in the Word of God. You know what? If your walk with the Lord is, you feel like you've tapped it out, and that you understand everything, and man, you've got it all, you need a revelation of the love of God. Once you understand how much God loves you, I guarantee you it just becomes addictive. You can't ever get enough of it, and you can't understand enough. There is depth and height and length to it that most people haven't ever experienced. And so it says that you might be able to experience, uh, to understand with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And look at verse 19. And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Now that sounds like a contradiction. How can you know it if it passes knowledge? There's two different types of knowledge. There is a mental intellectual assent, just facts, and then there is an experiential type of knowledge. I've heard it broken out before like there's a Western idea about knowledge and an Eastern way. And, of course, the Bible was written in the Eastern culture. And in our culture, you know, you go to school and you get a degree and people say that you know these things. But in those other cultures, you know what you do? You go and you apprentice. You not only are told how to do something, but then you have to start doing it. And this one friend of mine, I think it's Cecil Paxton that used this illustration, he said that like... um, in Europe and stuff, they would uh, uh, apprentice brick masons and uh, not just brick masons, but uh, what am I thinking? Artisans, stone masons. And they would apprentice them and they would not only teach them how to do it, but the master could tell after a while whether his pupil had gotten it by the sound that the hammer made when it struck the thing. When you struck it with just the right force and everything, you could hear And it was more than just information. It was more than just knowledge. It was experience that came through putting it to practice. And this is what this is talking about. For instance, the Bible says that Adam knew his wife Eve and that she conceived and bare a son. That isn't talking about mental assent. That isn't just saying that he could draw a picture of her. This is talking about the most intimate, close, personal relationship that you can have with the person And so this is what it's talking about. It says, and that you may know in an experiential, intimate type of way the love of Christ, which passes mere intellectual knowledge. And brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this to criticize criticize anybody. I'm saying this to help. But I really believe that a tremendous amount of Christians today only have a mere intellectual knowledge Or it would be like myself. I got born again at eight years old because I knew that God loved me and it got my attention and I prayed. But I mean, I was just scratching the surface and then I had this experience on 1968 and it just transformed my life. 
I think that most Christians are just barely inside of the door understanding the depth and the love of God for them. And that's the reason that they have so many problems. You know, if you are just nearly at the end of your rope, I can guarantee you, you don't understand the love of God for you. And I know some of you say, but you don't know what's happening to me. What I'm saying is you don't know how much God loves you. (laughs) Amen. I may not know the depth of your problem, but you don't know the depth of God's love. When you understand how much God loves you, you just really get to a place to where who cares about anything else? Amen. Shoot me. Get me. Get it over for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But I have people, well, the doctor says I'm going to die. Well, we sing these songs when we all get to heaven. What a day that's going to be. And then the doctor tells you you're going and you fall apart like a $2 suitcase. Something's wrong with this picture. Man, we just had a victory celebration today of a good friend who died and went on to be with the Lord. And I tell you, it was encouraging. It was a blessing. It was good. That's the way that it ought to be. You know what? We are rejoicing because for us to live as Christ and to die is even better. If you get that attitude, tell me what it is that's going to terrify you and bother you. If you've got the attitude of the Apostle Paul that, man, you are struggling. You're in a great struggle here because you have a desire to go on to heaven, but you feel like it's necessary to stay here. If you had that attitude, I guarantee you, it wouldn't matter if there was physical problems. It wouldn't matter if somebody was prophesying death and destruction to you and all of these things. It just really doesn't matter. Somebody says, but I don't have all of my needs met. Well, you know, if you were to think about that in heaven, you've got streets paved with gold. If you were to think about all of that, you know what? It'd be like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It's just 60 years left down here anyway. Amen. So I only got 60 years to endure this. I'm going to live in a mansion. It'd get to where, you know, nothing bothers you. One last testimony on this, that when I was in Vietnam... I had an experience where uh, I was a chaplain's assistant and they flew us out to this advanced fire support base right on the Laotian border. And they were being attacked and eventually they were overrun the same day that I was out there on that hill. But I flew in with the chaplain and the chaplain, he was a Protestant chaplain so he didn't administer last rites or anything, but it was the Protestant equivalent of last rites. Those people were all going to be killed. And they flew the chaplain in, so I flew in with the chaplain, and they left us there about three hours. And we were in an area that was probably the size of this room or less, and we took 175 direct mortar hits in the three hours and something I was in there. I mean, we were being bombarded. And there was only like uh, 50 guys or something like that on that hill. And there was thousands and thousands of NVA troops uh, fighting against us. So anyway... While we were there, we were under these little um, cones. They were, they were like a culvert, but they were tall enough that, you know, you, they were about four to five feet tall, and we were inside there, and these mortars and shrapnel were hitting everywhere, and we had services in there for all of those guys. And during that period of time, while we were waiting on the chopper to come and pull us out, because they weren't going to waste a chaplain's life, they flew him in to pray for those people and minister to them, but then they flew the chaplain out. Um, while we were waiting on the chopper to come, uh, we were under heavy fire. And I had my M16 pointed down the hill. And you could see the muzzle fire from the NVA troops coming up that hill. And you know what was going on on the inside of me? 
I didn't even remember this. It was just another day in Vietnam until I read a book 20 years later and a guy told a story about the day his hill was overrun and I think he was talking about that exact thing. It was in the same, uh, uh, what do you call those, the brigade or the uh, battalion that I was in. I think it was the same place. If it wasn't the same place, it was exactly like that. And I had this flashback. I had my M16 pointed down the hill and as those troops were coming up, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking, oh God, this is awesome. This is awesome. I said, today I could be with you. I was so excited. I couldn't hardly stand myself. I was thinking, this could be awesome. Today I could see the Lord. And then I felt compassion going out for those Vietnamese. And you know what? I'm not saying I wouldn't have shot them. I mean, if they'd have got up in range, I'd have shot them. But I was praying for them right before I shot them. I know some of you don't understand. I don't understand it, but I'm just telling you that this is what I was doing. I was praying for them, and I felt so much love and compassion. Did you know it was actually a positive experience? And it just, I mean, I felt so much joy. I felt so much peace. And some of them think, some of you are thinking, you're crazy. And see, when I read this, who said that so loud? And when I read this book 20 years later, the guy was writing it from the unbeliever's perspective and he was talking about the fear and the dread. And I read his account 20 years later and did you know that same fear and dread came on me 20 years later after the experience. It's like God just pulled back a curtain and said, this is what it would have been like if you hadn't have been in my presence. But you know, the scripture says in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. I'm just testifying to you. I know some of you think that this is easier to preach than it is to live, but I'm saying that when you understand that God loves you and you understand how much God loves you, it's like the, the old song that we used to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. When you get caught up into the presence of God and when you think about how much God loves you, it really doesn't matter if you're dying. It doesn't matter if your needs are met. It doesn't matter if your body's hurting. It just, nothing else matters. It, it incubates you. It just puts you into a place that nothing can touch you. And I can testify that facing death, seeing people die all around me, I still had so much joy, so much peace in my life that, you know, I never even mentioned that to anybody. I wasn't married at the time, but I never told my mother about it. When we got married, I never told Jamie about it until I read this book because it was just, it was the way every day was. Every day was like that. You can live... I know some of you are disagreeing with me, but I'm telling you this is the way that I live. You can live at a level to where you aren't bothered by the little nitpicking things that seem to just sidetrack and bother people. You know, if some of you were to write down in a journal all of the things that are making your life so miserable, if you were to write them down in a journal and come back in a year and read them, you'd laugh at them because they were so insignificant. You would have forgotten them if you hadn't have written them in a journal. And yet we get occupied and focused on these things 
because we just don't know the love of God. I'm testifying to you that when you comprehend the height, the depth, and I'm not saying I've, I've understood it all, but I'm saying I've gone deeper than many people have, and I know that there's a lot more that I can still go. But when you begin to start comprehending the love of God, it just makes it to where nothing else matters. It's very similar to when you fall in love with your mate. If it's a true God kind of love, you can get so in love with that person that you just forget everything else. There's some of you that when you were courting and stuff, man, you would you would work all day, stay out all night with that person, get a couple hours sleep and go at it again, and you were thrilled to do it. No problem. You know, I, rem- I was an introvert. Could hardly talk to people before the Lord got hold of me. But boy, when he did that, not long after that, Jamie and I got uh, engaged and we were going to be married and I was pouring cement for a living. And I was working with all of these guys that were ungodly to the max. I mean, and I witnessed to all of them and we got to lead a few of them to the Lord. But most of the, uh, the crew that I poured concrete with were ungodly. And I mean, every night they went out and had sex with somebody that was besides their partner and they'd get drunk. They'd come to work drunk. And it was just a bad situation. And so I'd already witnessed to them and, and, um, and it, was, it was just a lot of stuff. And so anyway, when I told them that Jamie and I were going to get married, oh boy, they gave me no rest. They were judging me by their standards. And they were saying, uh-huh, so what did you do last night? And they would always talk about this and so to avoid it I just wouldn't I wouldn't mention Jamie in front of them I wouldn't talk to them about it because they were giving me a rough time but you know what I was so in love with Jamie I was thinking about Jamie so much that I remember I was troweling uh, cement on a bay window and when you trowel that cement water comes to the surface and I was looking at my reflection in the mirror as I was troweling and I got to thinking about Jamie and I just found myself going Jamie I love you and <laughs> And I literally lost consciousness of myself. And I, all of a sudden I looked and not only was there my face, there was all of these black faces all around me. And they were listening to me and I mean, they let me have it. But my point is that you know what? If I would have been normal, I would have never done that because man, I knew I was going to have to pay for it. But you know what? I just got to thinking about Jamie more than I got to thinking about myself. And that's the way it is. You can fall so in love with the Lord that honestly, it just doesn't bother you. Somebody pulls in front of you in traffic and it ruins your whole day and you get mad because somebody cut you off. You know what? You need a revelation of God's love for you. It's true. It's just not that big of a deal. I remember when Jamie and I got a brand new car. I took it to church the very first Sunday and a woman backed into it. It still had the temporary tags on it. And she came out and she recognized who I was. And she, oh, I'm so sorry. I just ruined your new car. And I said, oh, it's not a big thing. It's no problem. And she just apologized a dozen times. And I kept telling her, it's not a big thing. Nobody's hurt. It's just a car. It's not important. But you know what? There are some people that if you were to just ruin your brand new car, I mean, it would ruin you for a month. You're the same guy that said amen when while ago. You got to watch how you say amen. 
I remember another time that I had just come home from this trip from hell. I won't tell you about all of that, but it was... It's the worst travel experience we ever had in our life. And we came home to all of this snow and I had two cars break down and get sideways in the driveway and had to call a wrecker. It was just a pain. And I went out and bought two brand new cars in one week because I said, you know what? The way that things go in my life, I don't need this when I come home. So I went and bought two brand new cars so we'd have good vehicles that wouldn't break down on us. And we had a guy come up to our house to fix something. And so I drove him up in my new pickup and I just kind of parked it behind the garage because we just got out and ran in and he fixed the thing. And then as we were coming out, I just bought this brand new car. It was analog brakes were brand new. And he says, oh, I've heard of analog brakes. And we got a steep hill like this is my driveway and it was covered with ice. And I said, well, I'll show you how these analog brakes work. But the car that had the analog brakes was in the garage and I had parked the pickup behind the garage. And so I was talking to him and I pushed the garage door opener and I backed my brand new Subaru into my brand new pickup. I not only messed up one car, I messed up both cars at one time. And he was just beside himself. And I said, oh, it's just a car. It's not a big deal. And to this day, it was Steve Martin. Steve Martin still talks about that. He says, man, I, it, it made a big impression on him because I, I messed up two cars and it didn't ruin my life. You know, you can get to where you love God and it's just, you know, it's just stuff. Jamie and I got evacuated from our home during the fire. And as we were leaving, all of our neighbors were packing up U-Hauls and moving everything out because we were evacuated for two weeks. The fires got that close to our home and we prayed over it. And as we were getting ready to leave, Jamie says, you know, I agree with you. I believe we're coming back home and everything will be okay. But she says, you know what? It's just stuff. This was our dream home. I built it, designed it. We love it. It's awesome. But you know what? If it would have burned, it's just stuff. And she says, we enjoyed getting it. We'd enjoy getting it back. Boy, is that a great attitude or what? I'm just using those things to illustrate that, brothers and sisters, you can know the love of God in a way that just passes mental assent, but to the point that God's love is so strong in your life, really nothing else matters. If God Almighty loves you, nothing else is really that important. Somebody says, but my mate doesn't love me. If you knew how much God loved you, you know what? It would even be tolerable having your mate not love you. It's true. Many of us, I just talked to a guy who's in ministry and very effective ministry, but you know what? He was Mr. Perfect. I won't give you any details lest somebody figures out who this is, but he was Mr. Perfect. His wife was Mrs. Perfect. I mean, just, it's, it's like a storybook romance, something that everybody wants to have. Mr. and Mrs. Perfect. And... Their marriage is falling apart because some things happened. And anyway, part of it is they were so perfect that both of them decided this mate is going to make me complete. And they had so much faith, so much dependence upon their mate that when things went wrong, all of a sudden now they're finding out that, you know what, their their life wasn't truly anchored in God. It was anchored in their perfect life and their perfect mate and their perfect home and everything else. And I just got a call today and they're just, I mean, they're just about, the marriage is just about over. 
and it's because they became codependent upon each other. You can reach a place. John Wesley was a guy that his wife, he married this woman just because back in his days in the 1700s you had to have a wife to be able to preach. So he, it was an arranged marriage. He married this woman. She hated him. She was a witch. She beat him. She mocked him. She'd spit on him. She'd do things. She hated God, hated him with the passion. And he went right on loving God and changed the world. One of the greatest men of God that ever lived, and he had a witch for a wife. And I guarantee you there's some of you that if your wife just doesn't do everything perfectly, if your husband doesn't, you just stick your thumb in your mouth. And you know what? You can't praise God with your thumb in your mouth. You've got to get to a place where it doesn't matter even if your kids, if your wife, if anybody. It doesn't matter what's going on. If God Almighty loves you, that should be enough. And if that's not the way that you feel, then it's because you haven't got a full revelation of how much God loves you. So in verse 19, it says, And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. You could backtrack. You could take that verse and turn it around backwards and work from the end to the front. And you could say this, that if you aren't filled with all of the fullness of God, then you don't really know the love of God in a way that passes mere knowledge. You've stopped at just intellectual knowledge, but if you were embracing, if you were experiencing the love of God, it'll cause you to be filled with the fullness of God. If you aren't full of God, if you aren't just overwhelmed thinking, man, this is awesome, God is awesome, it is a wonderful thing, God loves us, if that's not your attitude, then you don't have an experiential revelation of the love of God. And that's not meant to condemn anybody. It's meant to help you and to bless you. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. These are scriptures that describe the love of God. And you know what? I've actually got a series, a six-part series that goes through nothing but these verses. I'm not going to be able to do that in depth tonight. But let me just point out some things. It talks about, you know, in the first verse, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, which the word charity is an old English word for love. But it's specifying a God kind of love, an unselfish love. That's the reason that we call things like Salvation Army and Goodwill charities today, because they emphasize helping your fellow man. God's kind of love isn't the cheap, imitation that our world talks about today. I tell you, I I hate this, but Hollywood has had such an influence on our society. Even Christians have been influenced by it that we go see romance, love stories, and I guarantee you it's just such a shallow depiction of what true love is. True love. Man, you see some of these things and they're shacking up with one person and then somebody else comes along and they shack up with them for a while and talk about, oh, that they're in love. God's kind of love would never do something like that. That is a selfish love that won't make a commitment, that won't honor the other person. And I tell you, we've been fooled. There's, it needs to be a total explanation in the difference between God's kind of love and the world's love. And that's what all of this weekend is going to be about is pointing out the difference to you. So anyway, you could, God's kind of love is charity, is what this word is referring to. And it says, if you speak with the tongues of men, of angels, and have not charity, you are become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. 
All you are is a bunch of noise. No substance. You're all mouth. That's what this is saying. Again, this isn't intended to hurt anybody. It's just saying that there's a lot of people that can make the right noises. But you know what? There's no substance to it. And you know how you tell the difference? Whether it's motivated by love. There's some of you that may be doing the right things, but is it motivated by love? There may be some of you that are staying with your mate because you know that the Bible says you aren't supposed to divorce, but you aren't motivated by love. You aren't doing it with charity, God's kind of love, and it profits you nothing. It's not a matter of just doing the right thing. The motive behind your action is even more important than your action. You not only need to be doing the right thing, but this is saying that you need to do it with the right motive. You could even speak in tongues. And if you aren't doing it motivated by love, if you're doing it as something you've got to do to earn something, maybe you need something from God and you heard somebody say that if you'd pray in tongues an hour a day, that'll really get the power of God flowing. So you're praying in tongues to basically strong arm God, put some pressure on Him, twist His arm and make Him move, then it profits you nothing wrong motive. In verse 2, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, God's kind of love, I am nothing. Boy, this is amazing. You know, you could be operating so strong that you see the dead raised, blind eyes open, the sick healed. You could move mountains. You could be all of these things. And if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, God's kind of love, it profits me nothing. Well, that's a powerful scripture. This is showing that the motive behind your gift is more important than your gift. There's some of you that put money in the offering buckets, but if you don't do it out of love, thanksgiving, appreciation for what God has done for you. If you do it because you're coerced into it, because somebody is compelling you, somebody's condemning you, somebody's making you feel unworthy or like you're scum if you don't give. Did you know if you give with all of that, then it profits you nothing. It may benefit the person or the church that you give to, but it won't profit you a thing. And this is the exact reason that many people have given. There's some of you in here that have given and tithed. And if you were to take a hundredfold return, the Bible says, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, that if you give, you will receive a hundredfold in this life with persecutions. If it was as simple as just give and boom, you get a hundredfold. Just think how much money you've put in the ministry. And what would a hundredfold time all of money that you put in the ministry be? And it says you'd get it in this life, not just in the next one, in this life. I can guarantee you there's people sitting in this auditorium tonight that haven't seen a hundredfold return on your giving. And you know why? If you do it with the wrong motivation, if you're doing it to pay a debt, if you're doing it to keep from being cursed with the curse, then it profits you nothing. That money is gone out of your life and you aren't getting a return on it. The motive behind your giving is more important than your giving. Boy, those are strong statements. So, in verse 4, he begins to start listing characteristics of God's kind of love. And we often take this and apply it in our relationship to others, and that's a valid application. But I want you to think about this. If this is the way that God's love is, then I want you to take this and apply it towards yourself. Instead of thinking about 
how this, you know, if I'm really operating in God's kind of love, then I'll suffer other people long. Instead of just thinking about that, think about that God's kind of love suffers long and is kind. You know what? God is long-suffering with you. I remember a time in my life that I honestly was so dissatisfied with myself and it was over the fact that I was trying to witness but I was such an introvert that I just couldn't do it and I felt like, God, I was mad at myself and I thought, I just believe you're going to put me on the shelf. Why would you use anybody like me? And you know what? It was the love of God that showed me that he's long-suffering. Man, God is long-suffering. He commanded us. You know, Peter says, Lord, how many times should I... Forgive my, bro- my brother sinned against me and I forgive him. Seven times? He says not seven times. Seventy times seven. That's 490 times in one day. If God commanded me to forgive you 490 times in one day, then I can guarantee you God can at least do that much. And yet most of us think that God has less of a fuse than we are supposed to have. I had a guy in uh, a town invite me to his church, he heard me teach on hardness of heart, which emphasizes why you need to live holy, to soften your heart towards God. He thought through that, that I was preaching legalism. And so he invited me to his church. I went to his church, and when I got to his church, I preached real strong on the grace of God. And this guy got very upset, very upset. We had 600 people at each one of the services, and they sold hundreds. I don't know how many tapes. But anyway, this guy got so mad at what I was teaching. He led the praise and worship every night, and he would get up, and as soon as the, serve, as the praise and worship was over, he would walk right down the front row and out of the church. The pastor. He did not like it. And he met with me afterwards and told me that I was misrepresenting and that weak people were going to think that I was encouraging alcoholism and everything else because I was preaching that God loved you. And anyway, I, I was probably wrong. You know what? I'm not perfect. So give me some slack here. But I'm just telling you what happened. In front of all of these people, he had just gotten up and sang a song about I forgive you before you ask. I forgive you even if you never ask. And he's the one that wrote this song. It was his song. And he introduced it by talking about, oh, the love of God. And, and then he got up and sang this song. I forgive you before you ask. I forgive you even if you never ask. So before he got out the church, I said, I won't tell you his name. I called him and I said, did you write that song? And he stood there, yes, I wrote that song. And I said, do you believe that God really wants us to forgive people even if they don't deserve it, if they don't even ask us to forgive? He said, Absolutely. I said, what if they never ask for forgiveness? He says, absolutely. And I said, isn't that strange? Some people think that God wants us to operate in more mercy and forgiveness than he does. And boy, he got the point and he stormed right out of the church. But <laughs> that didn't go real well. But anyway, you know, this says that God's kind of love suffers long and is kind. Did you know that that's not the way that most people see God. They see God as having a short fuse. They see God as being harsh. And you know what? There's scriptures that reveal that, but they're all in the Old Testament. I'm going to share that with you before this week is out and try and answer some of these things and show you some things about the nature of God. But it says, charity, God's kind of love suffers long in His kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. This is all old English, but the word vaunteth, it just means it, does, it isn't uh, self-serving. 
It isn't self-promoting. You know, God is a humble God. Jesus said, I am meek and lowly in heart. Out of Matthew chapter 11. You know, God's kind of love, it's not all about just serving Him. Certainly, He is the Lord and we aren't. But the Lord, when when Jesus came, He humbled Himself and He knelt down and washed His own disciples' feet. He humbled Himself and took the position of a servant. And He said, this is the way that I am. This is the way that I want you to be. And yet many of us see ourselves as we are worth nothing. And yet God, His kind of love, He exalts you. He commanded us to think of other people better than ourselves over in Philippians chapter 2. Did you know that God put us ahead of Himself? The Lord could have wiped us out, destroyed the earth. He came close to doing it in the days of Noah. He could have literally wiped out the human race and it wouldn't have made God any less. God could have gotten over it. But you know what? He did it for our sake. He did it for us. Man, that's awesome. He's long-suffering. He's kind. He's not envious. He is not self-promoting. He is not puffed up. He doesn't operate in pride. He does not behave himself unseemly. Boy, that's a great one. Did you know that we've been lied to again about what love is? What most of us have been told is love is lust. It's all about your hormones. It's all emotional. It's carnal. It's sensual. It's devilish. And there are people that are just, oh, I'm just so in love. I'm so overwhelmed with emotion. I just can't control myself. God's kind of love never acts unseemly, which means unbecoming. If you can't control it, if you have some emotion that is just compelling you, write it off that it is not God. And that's not only in the physical uh, sexual relationship, that's in anything. There are religious people today that say, but the Spirit of the Lord is on me and they just can't help themselves and they stand up and speak in tongues out of order and do things wrong and and violate Scripture and, and you go to them and and they say, but the Spirit is on me. I just can't help it. Right, it can buy it over them. I guarantee you, that's not God. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. If you are truly motivated by God's kind of love, you can control it. It says over in Titus chapter 2, verse 4, the elder women are supposed to teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. You teach yourself to love. It doesn't just come and go. A fat baby doesn't shoot you and you fall in love and fall out of love. You make a decision to love. And yet how many times have you heard even Christian people say, well, I want to love them, but the truth is it's just gone. I can't fight it. The fire's out. All that's happened is lust left. You sucked all the life out of that person that you can get. And so now you're going to go suck the life out of somebody else for a while. It's like you stick a straw down in one of those cups and suck it until you hear the... And you say, well, we've lost our flame. No, you just sapped all the life out of them. So you're going to go get somebody else that you can drain for a while. But I can't help it. Well, God's kind of love does not behave itself unseemly. God's kind of love will never act contrary to the Word. 
And if what you're feeling and calling love is causing you to do something contrary to what God says, it's not love. It's lust. Thank you for that thunderous silence. It says it seeks not our own, is not easily provoked. God isn't easily provoked. You know, we have examples of the wrath of God in the Bible. But you know, if you really stop and think about it, God is a super patient, loving God, even under the old covenant. And under the new covenant, our sins have now all been paid for. Not only ours, but the sins of all of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. God's not ticked off. God's not about ready to judge America. And that's yet the, that's the drumbeat. That is the number one cry in the body of Christ today. Repent or God's going to judge America. If God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, if God does judge America, he'll have to apologize to Jesus. Because Jesus bore our sins, not only ours, but the sins of all of the world. God is not ticked off. He's not mad. He's not even in a bad mood. He thinks no evil. God's kind of love doesn't think evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. You know, I've been studying some scriptures. I haven't got time to go into it tonight. But, you know, it's amazing to me how God focuses on the positive instead of the negative. On an individual basis, on a national basis, God is just super positive. He told us whatsoever things are honest, pure, lovely, just, of good report. If there's praise and virtue in it, think on these things. That's the way that he wants us to be. And yet we, our human nature, is exactly the opposite. If there's a hundred things in your life and if there was one thing wrong, that's what most people would focus on instead of the, all of the positive things. And likewise with God. Did you know if there's a hundred things in your life and 99 of them are wrong, God will focus on the good thing that's on the inside of you and try and build you up. That's true. When God created the heavens and the earth, He said, let there be light. And it says He saw the light. Did you know that the darkness was still there? But He chose not to look at the darkness. He looked at the light. When you got born again, God put light, a brand new spirit on the inside of you. You became a new person and God sees you in the spirit and God sees you who you are in Christ and the Lord looks at you. Again, we haven't been taught this. We've been taught the exact opposite, that God is an angry God. I've actually had a man come to me one time that told me that he saw God as an ancient looking person with a long beard leaning over a banister in heaven with a lightning bolt just waiting on somebody to get out of line. And every time they do something wrong, zap, man, striking them with lightning. That may be a little dramatization, but you know what? Most people honestly do see God as carrying a big stick and just waiting on you to get out of line. And yet this says that God's kind of love doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And look at this in verse 7. It bears all things. Boy, this is awesome. I could preach on this for a long time. But I couldn't tell you how many times people have come, I just can't bear anymore. I just can't stand it. You know what you've just said? You aren't walking in the love of God because if you were walking in the love of God, you could bear it. This marriage is so bad. I mean, I can only go so far. God doesn't expect me to take all of this. 
All you're saying is that you have only used your human resources. You haven't yet pushed over into God because when you get into God, God's kind of love, it goes on to say in verse 9, love never fails. Or verse 8, charity, God's kind of love never fails. You know what? When you are flowing in God's kind of love, you can love the unlovely just like God loved us. You can bear all things. You can believe all things. You can hope all things. You can endure all things. If you're saying, I just can't endure it anymore, all you're saying is, you know what? I haven't yet drawn on God's love. I've only tried to love them out of my natural self. I haven't let God live through me. If I can't bear it anymore, if I just, I just don't believe anything good's going to come out of this anymore, all that means is that you haven't operated in God's kind of love. God's kind of love will believe all things. Isn't that good? And then it says, charity, God's kind of love, never fails. Man, if you're operating in God's kind of love, you won't fail. Faith will work by love. Love will cause you to be able to endure things, to believe things, to hope things, to do things that you could never do on your own. And brothers and sisters, what I'm saying tonight is that all of these scriptures talking about we'll be filled with the fullness of God. That all of these things, we'll be able to hope and believe and do all of this. That's not the average person's experience. And so what that means is that the average Christian isn't really flowing in the true love of God. They haven't got a revelation knowledge of the love of God. There's some things that have caused us not to really understand it. And so this weekend what I'm going to do is just start sharing some things. And I'm going to approach this in probably a really different way than what you might expect. And I'm going to share some things with you that hopefully will help clarify this and amplify the love of God. And if you'll receive it, I believe that by the time this weekend's over, you're going to leave with a greater revelation of God's love. And as a result, you'll be fuller with the fullness of God. You will have faith operating in you. You'll be able to bear things, hope things, believe things that you weren't able to do before because everything really centers around a relationship of God's love. And it's amazing how many people just have a doctrine. They have a religion. You know, I hate to use the word religion and apply it to Christianity because in my way of thinking, different words mean different things to different people. But to me, the word religion is not a positive word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. And in those times, it says true religion. It has to qualify it because even the Bible, you know... Religion is basically men's ideas of God. There's a Buddhist religion, a Hindu religion, a Muslim religion. Those are men's opinion. But Christianity isn't a religion. It's not just a set of rules. It's not a formula. It's not a doctrine or a creed, even though there are doctrines in the Bible. True Christianity is a relationship with God. It's different than anything else. You know, if you ever have any of these people come knock on your door and they're trying to, you know, be Jehovah Witness or something and they're trying to convert you, you know, all you got to do, instead of arguing doctrine with them, just go to talk in relationship. Just go to talk in relationship. Well, you're sitting here saying that we shouldn't pray in fellowship with Jesus, but let me tell you that Jesus is my best friend. Boy, I love Jesus. Jesus has done this. And you go to talk in relationship and they'll hit the door running. 
They can argue scriptures. They have been taught doctrine. They've been taught techniques of debate. But they don't have relationship. And that's what Christianity really ought to be all about. It ought to be all relationship. You know, when I was over in Vietnam, I was teaching a Bible study one time. And I was using the chapel that we had on this fire support base. And I had about seven people in this... uh, Bible study, and this guy came in who was a Princeton-educated graduate. He was an intellectual, real smart guy. And he came in and listened to me for a while, and then he took issue with something I said and started uh, mocking me and criticizing Christianity. And this guy out-argued me so much so that I had about seven people in this Bible study. They all got up and left with him. He stood up and said that you are deceived, you're a liar, there is nothing to any of this, there is no God. And anyway, all of these people got up and left with him. And I was just sitting there thinking, you know, I didn't do very good on that one. (laughs) And in about 30 minutes, this guy walked back in and sat down and got out this little book and acted like he was reading it. And I said, oh God, give me another chance, help me to witness to this guy. And while I was praying about that, this guy just walked, he waited until some other people left and then he walked over to me and he says, I want what you got. And I said, you do? (laughs) And he says, I just out-argued you. He says, my whole life is based on an argument. It's intellectual. And he said, I made a fool out of you and yet you still believe what you believe. And part of the reason he knew that is because I told him as he's getting ready to leave, I said, well, you know what? I can't answer your questions, but I know God's real because he lives on the inside of me. I said, I've talked to him today. I said, you just can't tell me that he doesn't exist because I talked to him and he speaks to me. And I started giving him testimonies of miracles and how that I knew it wasn't just me thinking these things. It was God communicating with me. And he came back and he says, I want what you want, what you have. And I got to lead this guy to the Lord. And he got born again, you know, because he had an argument, but I had a relationship. A person with a relationship is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. And too few of us really are enjoying the full benefits of the relationship that Jesus has given us. Many times we've just degraded to where we're We're doing what we're told. We're following principles and rules. But you aren't in fellowship and communion with God. If you're really in fellowship with the Lord and enjoying His presence, I guarantee you God will give you supernatural revelation and ability to understand and and to deal with things. And when you do have problems in your life, it'll just be like water off a duck's back because, man, the love of God is surrounding you. And brothers and sisters, there's a lot of people that haven't experienced that. There's a lot of people who may just be religious and you have been going to church and believe that God exists, but the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, you believe that there's one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But won't you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? That's one of the most sarcastic statements in the Bible. You believe that there's a God? You think that that makes you right with God? Well, you haven't done anything that the devil hasn't done you got to go beyond that. you got to bow the knee and not only believe He exists, but make Him your personal Lord. And when, you, when that happens, 
Jesus said that He comes and lives on the inside of you and has fellowship with you. If you are truly born again, it's not just that you have a a set of religious rules, Christian rules, while other people have Buddhist rules or Muslim rules. No, you have a relationship. You have a person that is living on the inside of you. You know, since I had that experience, March the 23rd, 1968, and I really saw the love of God. Jamie and I were just talking about this a week or two ago. Somebody had said something about being uh, lonely. You know, I haven't been lonely a minute of my life since 1968. And I got shipped to Vietnam. I was over there by myself, away from all of my friends. I never met a Christian in Vietnam unless I led them to the Lord. I didn't have a single person to fellowship with. And I longed for fellowship because I knew it was beneficial for me and I enjoyed that fellowship. But you know why? I wasn't lonely. I had God with me. Man, I was fellowshipping with God. It was awesome. You know what? If you truly get to walking in the love of God, you won't be lonely. You'll have a person come live on the inside of you. And there's some people that all they have is a commitment to some set of rules or they acknowledge certain things to be true, but they haven't established a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. Jesus said He would live on the inside of you. You know what? If you don't have that personal relationship, you need to move from religion into relationship. And without it, you'll go to hell. It's not enough just to believe that God exists. The devil believes that and even trembles at his name. But you have to have this personal relationship. So if you've never done that, you need to receive Jesus as your Savior tonight. And if you've been born again, and if you truly have made Jesus your Lord, but if you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then it's impossible it's impossible for you to really move into this relationship of love because the Scripture says in Romans chapter 5 that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't perceive something that you can't see, taste, hear, smell, or feel. You need the Holy Spirit to quicken this to you. And it's my personal testimony, that example I told you about in 1968, that's when I received the Holy Spirit. And I tell you what, my life just transformed. It was awesome. And there's many things that happen. You receive gifts. You speak in tongues. I had not got time to preach on that tonight. But speaking in tongues is one of the great things. The Bible says when you pray in tongues, you're praying the hidden wisdom of God. You're speaking mysteries. You are building up yourself on your most holy faith. It says that when you pray in tongues, this is the rest and this is the refreshing wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. If any of you are weary or if you need refreshed, all you got to do is speak in tongues. That's what it does. It's just like flipping a switch. You know what? If you are born again, but if you don't have this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, you need that to be able to go deeper into the love of God. And I know that some of you here tonight, you've seen me on TV and you think, well, I didn't realize you were a tongue talker. (laughs) You aren't one that spits and screams and you don't wipe your fevered brow. I thought you were a Baptist. (laughs) Well, I used to be, but you know what? Now I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit and I speak in tongues with the best of them. So I'm telling you, this is my personal experience that if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit... It's an absolute necessity for you to truly get 
a revelation of the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth. And when you start flowing in these gifts, it'll make a huge difference in your life. So is there anybody here tonight that would say, you know what, I need either to make go from religion into relationship.